Hallelujah. Well, turn to our master text this morning in the book of 1 Kings, chapter 19. And while you're turning there, I just want to say that, as you remember, two weeks ago we had a glorious service with Eric Burton being here, and that was a very unusual service for this church. We went, what, three and a half, four hours we were here, and uh, some very unusual manifestations were happening, some healings were going on. It was a wonderful time in the Lord. And I just felt like the Holy Spirit wanted me to talk about uh, where we go from here and what our marching orders should be going forward after a service like that. So last week I did a teaching called What to Do After a Move of God. And I'm going to continue that here this morning with a part two of that. So when you find 1 Kings chapter 19, we're going to read the first eight verses. So stand up with me if you will and let's honor the word of God. Let me give you a little bit of backdrop here. This is just after um, Elijah won that great victory at Mount Carmel against the, uh, the 400 priests of Baal. And you remember that story where uh, Elijah challenged the priests of Baal and said, hey, let's, let's have a showdown. He didn't use those words. He said, let's have a showdown. Let's build an altar and put your sacrifice up on the altar. You go first. And if Baal is really God, let him answer your prayers with fire coming down out of heaven and consuming the sacrifice. And of course, they, they prayed all day, and he, Elijah started making fun of him. Well, shout louder, maybe Baal's on vacation or something. So he started making fun of them. And then he said, okay, well, after a, a half a day of this, he said, okay, you've had enough. Now it's my turn. So he prays, and immediately the fire of God comes down and consumes the sacrifice. And then the people fall down. Uh, face first, saying that Jehovah, he is God. So this set the stage for a wonderful revival in that time, and the 400 priests of the pagan god Baal were executed at that point. So it was a wonderful um, victory for Elijah and the, the people of Israel and the true followers of Jehovah. But now we go to chapter 19. And it says this, now Ahab told Jezebel everything. Now Ahab was the wicked king, remember, Jezebel was his wife. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. In other words, she was saying, you're a dead man. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there, was, there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat.
So we're going to study that chapter this morning in a little bit more depth. We're going to extract some truths out of that that I think that we can really um, get those marching orders from where we go from here regarding um, what to do after a move of God. So the first point that I want to make out of that passage is that there is a spiritual war around us, folks, and that war is very, very real. I want to reference here Ephesians 6.12 on that point, which says, of course, and many of you know this verse by heart probably, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So I think that's what Elijah was up against. And folks, there's something here that I cannot emphasize enough. And that's that there is a real satanic realm. And Satan and his demons hate you. Satan and his demons hate you. You know, we often hear about the love of God. And that's gloriously true. And that's something that we need to continue to emphasize, of course. But just as true is that there's a demonic realm who despises mankind because mankind represents the apple of God's eye. See, Satan is bent on destroying you and me. And this is part of what Elijah was up against with that discouragement that he fell into. I'll get into that point in a few minutes. Parents of younger children, I, I want to talk to you for a moment. Now, let me give you a sober truth here for just a moment. Satan is coming after your children. Satan is coming after your children. If you think that your kids are going to escape a confrontation with hell, you've got another thing coming. And as a matter of fact, I'm now convinced that most Christian parents are very naive when it comes to their kids' tendencies towards sin. See, your kids live in a world of sin, and they themselves have a sin nature. If there's ever a reason for you to go to war with hell, it's over your kids. Mom and dad, you had better not be on spiritual cruise control because if you are, you're likely going to lose. We need to follow the advice of the Apostle Peter and be sober and keenly aware and alert because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. See, we need to be looking out for his strategies, which leads me to our second point in what we can learn from the story of Elijah regarding where we go from here after a move of God. And that second point is this. Amazing victories are sometimes followed by a satanic strategy to discourage you and me. You know, one of Satan's strategies after a great victory in your life, and certainly this was true in Elijah's life, one of Satan's strategies after a great victory is to come to us to discourage us somehow. He comes to us to discourage us somehow after that great victory. In other words, there's a counterattack like we talked about last week. So let's read part of that passage over again with that point in mind. In verses 2 and 3, it says, Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, May the gods deal with me and ever so severely if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like the lives of those you killed. And Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. And then in verse 4 it says that 
Elijah sat down under a broom tree and prayed that he might die. Even after that great victory at Mount Carmel, he prayed that he might die. He said, I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I am no better than my fathers or my ancestors. Well, folks, even the greatest people of faith sometimes are not immune to falling into discouragement. Did you know that? A lot of people in the Bible that were great patriarchs of faith that at one time or another fell into discouragement. And the same could be true of, and actually is true, of many of the great pastors and preachers, some of your favorite preachers on TV or wherever, uh, have fallen into times of discouragement. It's a very common thing because we have an enemy. Okay? And Satan will do everything in his power to stop the move of God in your life. So when there's a great move of God, Satan comes in with a counterattack to try to stop the move of God in your life. As an example, David. You would think that David, for example, would have had a grand old time and enjoying the afterglow of him slaying Goliath and setting the stage for Israel to win a major victory against their enemies. And he did enjoy the afterglow of that for a while. But what followed were some of the most difficult times of David's life as Satan tried to snuff out the call of God on his life through the murderous intentions of King Saul. He became a fugitive, running for his life. For years, he ran for his life. He was separated from his wife. He lived his life like an outlaw. And he was eventually even betrayed by his closest and most trusted friend, Jonathan. But what was not immediately uh, evident was that this demonic assault against David was actually backfiring in Satan's face. Because what David didn't realize is that during those years of living in the wilderness, God was training him as a powerful leader a rugged man acquainted with hardship, a man fully prepared to advance God's kingdom in the earth. And that's why I love what he said here in Psalm 144, 1 and 2. It's a David writing here. He says, Praise be to the Lord my God, who trains my hands for battle, or trains my hands for war, rather, my fingers for battle. He is my loving God and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield in whom I take refuge. I just love this about God, by the way, that he takes what Satan means to destroy you and uses it for your good if you continue to just hang in there and refuse to give up on God. See, the worst chapter of your life, you got to listen to this right here. The worst chapter of your life actually becomes the catalyst for a glorious future when you just refuse to stay down. I didn't get nearly enough of a response on that. That's true. The worst chapter of your life can become a catalyst for a glorious future. If you just have that mindset, I don't care what comes, I refuse to stay down because I have a God that can do anything and I trust in Him. Praise God. So that is the legacy of David, by the way, and that's also the legacy of Elijah. And, and folks, listen, I believe 
that there are many Elijahs and Davids in this room right now. How many Elijahs and Davids do I have in this room right now? Praise God. You just refuse to stay down. Yeah, praise God. Hallelujah. The third observation that I want to make from this passage about Elijah and as it pertains to where we go from here and uh, what to do after a great move of God is this. God can use those times of discouragement to give us perspective. You might want to write that down in your notes. It gives us perspective. See, listen, it would have been very easy for Elijah to be overcome by a spirit of pride after having experienced that great victory at Mount Carmel where the pagan priests of Baal were defeated and then executed. Um, It would have been really easy for him to say, wow, you know, my sacrifice was uh, responded to by God with fire coming out of heaven and, and consuming the sacrifice. But he was confronted Just shortly after that, he was confronted with the fact that he was still only flesh and blood. And he found his victory only in God. Only in God. See, Jezebel's threats helped him to gain a proper perspective that it wasn't about him or his might or his ministry. But it was about God and God's strength. When he sat down and prayed to die, Elijah... He made the statement, I'm no better than my fathers or no better than my ancestors. And I think that's an interesting statement. And I think that that reveals where he was at at that point regarding his new perspective. Because Elijah operated in signs and wonders and miracles commonplace in his ministry. And it would have been easy for him to say, man, I'm, I'm really, I'm come a lot farther than my ancestors and my fathers before me. But he was at this place now where he was like, I'm no better than my ancestors. I'm no better than my fathers. And, you know, some of you in this room right now may have exceeded the righteousness of your parents tenfold, maybe. But really, if your analysis of yourself is accurate, you would have to admit that really, in so many respects, you're no better than your parents. Even if you walk with God and they didn't, well, you still have sin You still have fears. You still have all kinds of weaknesses. And without God, you would be nothing. You would be nothing. So we can't look at our family line and go, wow, I've got this thing figured out, don't I? No, because 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, so if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. As a matter of fact, I've got a funny little illustration that shows you exactly that mindset right there. And here you see this uh, studly guy on the ice with wearing nothing but shorts and a smile with his ice skates. And he's, uh, he's skating toward what looks like a kind of a thinner area of ice there. And he's, and he's like, oh, no problem. I got this. And then all of a sudden, plunk, goes right through the thin ice. Doop. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Don't be overconfident. Realize that your victories that you experience are only because of God and His mercy. Praise God. Well, I know I'm kind of zipping through these, but the fourth principle that we can learn from that story of Elisha and how we can apply it to our theme today, which is where we go from here, what do we do after a move of God, is this right here. Eat 
from God's hand. That's the, that's the next step, eat from God's hand. And you'll notice that the next thing that happened in that story that we just read is that Elijah rested in God's presence. And then he ate the supernatural food that God provided. And that's what we need to do as well. So let's reread that passage here and apply it to this point. Uh, then he, Elijah, lay down under the broom tree and fell asleep. Suddenly an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. So that's the first thing he was doing. He rested in God's presence. Verse 6. And he looked around and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. A second time the angel of the Lord returned and touched him saying, get up and eat or the journey will be too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank and strengthened by that food. He walked 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. All right. So the first point I want to make here is this. What do we do after a move of God? Would we learn to rest in his presence? We learn to, to rest by faith, right? And then we learn to eat from God's hand. Okay, well, what's that mean in practical terms? Well, we know that we're resting in God when we're free from anxiety. We know we've reached that place of faith and resting in God when we're free of anxiety and nervousness and depression. And we know that we're not in faith when we're full of anxiety and worry and depression. See, that's sort of the litmus test, isn't it, when it comes to the life of faith. And conversely, one of the ways that we get to that place of rest is to feed on God's supernatural food. Well, what is that in our case? It's His Word. It's His Word and praying in the Spirit because the Bible says that when you pray in the Spirit, you pray in an unknown tongue, you edify yourself. So that's the two things that, that uh, and actually three, what you're doing here this morning is edifying you because you're hearing the Word of God proclaimed. So you eat from God's hand. That's how we eat from God's hand and we're strengthened by that. So we rest in His presence just trust him that he's got all this worked out, and then we eat from God's hand and build up our faith. Amen. All right. So let's go to another principle here. Again, I'm kind of uh, clicking through these kind of quickly here for you, but all of these could probably be a, a whole sermon and teaching on their own. But I just wanted to give you the principles just out of that, those first eight verses. That There's so much in those eight verses that we can learn. Um, and apply to our life personally, especially when it comes to what to do after a great move of God. We've had a great victory because the counterattack's probably coming in some way, shape, or form, and we need to be prepared for it. So this is what we do. So these are the principles. The fifth one is listen to God's whispers. Now, we did not read past uh, verse 8 or 9, but if you keep reading in that chapter, once Elijah got to his destination, then he hung out in a cave for a while, right? And he waited there until God was ready to speak. And if you keep reading, you'll notice that there was this enormous earthquake and Elijah stayed right, right where he was because he knew that wasn't God speaking in the earthquake. Then there was a great fire and he knew that God was not in the fire, so he stayed put. And there was this tremendous wind that the Bible says tore the mountains apart and once again, Elijah stood right where he was because he knew God was not in the wind. But then he heard a gentle whisper. And at that point, he put his cloak over his, over his head, 
stepped out to the mouth of the cave, ready to listen to God because he knew that God was in the whisper. So we need to listen to God's whispers like Elijah did. You know, sometimes, folks, God does shout, but most of the time he speaks in just gentle whispers that require you and me to be sensitive to his spirit so we can pick up on those gentle whispers. He's always talking. He's always wanting to say something to you. We just need to tune in to his frequency. And how do we do that? Well, we need to tune out the noise of the world, folks, a lot of the time. We live in a very noisy world. And when I say noisy, I just mean a lot of things that are vying for our attention. So if you want to tune in to God's frequency, if you want to tune in to what he's trying to say to you, to his gentle little whispers, what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to spend a lot less time on social media. Sorry. A lot less time on social media. A lot less time in front of the TV. A lot less time in front of the news. And a lot more time just cultivating the presence of God in our own lives personally in our private time. See, it's really not unlike how any healthy relationship is supposed to work. The more time you spend with someone, the more you are attuned to that person. You know, Donna and I are about to celebrate our 28th year of marriage next month. Yeah, we are that old. And after almost 28 years of marriage, I've learned what slight little variations in Donna's expression or vocal tones mean. <laughs> See, that expression right there, I just, I know what that means. <laughs> That's a different discussion for a different day. And I wouldn't know what she means by those little variations in her expression and little variations in her, her tones of voice if I hadn't spent a lot of time with her, right? And it's possible to have that same sort of relationship with God. See, you can learn to discern God's voice and direction simply by quieting your spirit in his presence and spending a lot more time with him. What's a lot more time mean? Actually, the Bible says to pray in the Spirit on all occasions, all throughout the day. And I've been finding myself doing that a lot more. I'm actually setting a large block of time in the morning before I start my day. I'm, I'm tithing a tithe of my day in the morning now to the Lord, just an, at least an hour just in prayer. And then I get into my, my study. And then throughout the day, I'm finding myself praying in the Spirit. Just when I'm taking a shower or doing the, you know, driving down the road or doing some of the other busy work, I'm just praying, just, just cultivating that relationship with the Lord. And that's a way that we quiet our spirits and begin to tune into His frequency so we can hear those whispers when He talks. As a matter of fact, folks, listen, I, I want to say something to you. Sometimes you'll, you'll mistake the, the voice of God for your own imagination. And I want you to start to just practice the presence of God and just pray in the Spirit, pray for a while, worship for a while, and then just get quiet before Him. Just try to get quiet and just see what comes to your mind. And I, uh, my family and I have been in a situation right now with a, another family that doesn't go to this church. It's kind of a weird, you know, that was, we were treated kind of unkindly by this family. 
And um, you know how your flesh does. You just want to, especially a guy like me, I'm like all about justice. I want justice to be done. And so it's so easy for me to just like, I got to say this. I got to say my piece. I got to correct this thinking. And I was, I was praying the other day because Donna and I just both decided to back off and just not say anything. But I still had this energy in me like, I got to say something. I was in, the, in prayer the other day, not about that, but I was just in prayer. And um, I just got quiet before the Lord. And the Lord said just one short phrase to me that was very, very profound for that situation that we were in. How many of you know that God can just say a few words and speak volumes? Here's what he said to me. Stand aside and watch me work. Stand aside, Andy. I'd just like to be told that by God. Just get out of the way. That's not the way he said it. He's more polite than that. Stand aside and watch me work. And just a few days later, all the truth started to come out about that situation that we were in with this other family. So, yeah. So if, you, if we just get out of the way sometimes and let God work, he'll take care of it. He'll fight your battles. Right? He'll fight your battles. You don't always have to fly off of the mouth and try to, try to you know, tell your side of the story. Sometimes just be quiet and let God deal with it, and the truth eventually will come out. Praise God. So, ladies and gentlemen, all that I've taught you so far, I've just got a little bit more after this, but all that I've taught you so far is just really Christianity 101. This is all kind of basic stuff. These are actually some of the most foundational principles in walking with Christ. And I haven't told you anything today so far that's, that's really deep or terribly f- profound. But on the other hand, they are profound in their own right simply because these, in, the, in these simple principles, as you implement them, there is found strength and power in God. But I've got one more quick principle to share with you out of uh, 1 Kings here that uh, that story of Elijah provides. And that's this, listen to God's whispers And then, well, actually, I'm going to hold you in suspense on that point for a moment. Because I didn't read the scripture on the screen. This is, again, out of our our master text. Um, So this is the uh, fifth principle, again. Listen to God's whispers. And again, uh, verses 12 and 13. After the fire came, a still, small voice. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. All right. So that leads us to our final principle for this morning. So listen to God's whispers and then just follow his directions. Just follow his directions. So after Elijah heard that still, small whisper, this is what God said to him. Verse 15, Then the Lord said to him, Go back by the way you came. And go to the desert of Damascus. When you arrive, you are to anoint Haziel as king over Aram. You are also to anoint Jehu as king over Israel. And Elisha to succeed you as prophet. All right. Now, I want to say here that it's very encouraging to me, folks, that God was still interested in using Elijah. Even after he got so discouraged and even prayed to die. 
I mean, God was still interested in using him even after that point. Folks, listen, if there, if there was ever a man who should have had great faith in God's good intentions for him and God's ability to see him through, if there was ever a man who should have had faith that uh, the, the, the goodness and strength of God was going to be available to him, it was Elijah. Why he was so intimidated by Jezebel's threats, I don't know, except for maybe after that great victory at Mount Carmel, he maybe just let his guard down and Satan found an entry point into his heart to discourage him and lead him to a place of despondency and depression and feeling like totally giving up. That's my speculation there. But I think that is a pretty good speculation because, because many of us do that too. We have this great victory in our lives and we let our guard down and then Satan gets an entry point into our lives to discourage us soon afterward. And I understand that tendency, I really do, because as a pastor, I've had to fight through those times as well. As a matter of fact, just a few days after that glorious service where Eric Burton was here, we had such a great outpouring that day. Just a few days after that, I was in a store with Donna, walking down the aisles of the store, and I just had this feeling come over me. I wasn't even thinking about anything. Nothing bad had happened. All of a sudden, out of the blue, this feeling hit me and just like sucked all the motivation out of me. And I just went, <sighs> just like that. And Donna asked me, what's wrong? And I said, I don't know, just this feeling hit me, just all of a sudden, like, I don't really want to be a pastor anymore. That was the feeling. Like, like I said, nothing bad had happened. I didn't have any disappointments or discouragements. Just all of a sudden, it was a satanic attack. It's what it was. So what do you do during those times? You just keep moving forward in spite of your feelings. You... Follow God's directions and fight through it until it passes. Quote some scripture or something. Pray in the spirit. Whatever you have to do to fight through those times. And then when you muster your strength like Elijah did, you just keep going forward and doing what God said to do. And it was out of that kind of obedience that not only did Elijah get to see a new king replace wicked Ahab and Jezebel, but he was the one who got to anoint that new king. What a privilege. And not only did he get to see his own office as prophet continue to be fruitful for many more years to come, but he got to anoint a new prophet train him up by his own hands for many years, and then turn the job over to him when he got to go home to be with the Lord. So rather than just laying down and dying the death of discouragement, Elijah got up, dusted himself off, strengthened himself again, and moved forward. So rather than dying the death of discouragement, Elijah actually never died. Because he was taken up by a chariot of fire. That'd be a pretty cool way to go, wouldn't it? Um, God, if you ever want to do that a second time, I, you know, I'd like that. I'd like that. Well, as for you, you may actually die someday if the Lord tarries. But your godly legacy doesn't have to. Your godly legacy doesn't have to. I, I love these, uh, this 
little excerpt out of Psalm 112. I love the whole chapter of Psalm 112, but I'm just going to give you three verses out of it. It says, Hallelujah, blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commands. His descendants, or his children, will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Surely the righteous will never be shaken. They will be remembered forever. So that's a way that we can encourage ourselves this morning that if we just hang in there and refuse to feel sorry for ourselves. Hello. See, that's what Elijah was doing there for a while. He was feeling sorry for himself. Oh, I just won this great victory, but now what's it going to be worth? Because I'm being hunted and Jezebel's going to kill me. And I'm the only prophet left. And God had to correct him on that too. He said, no, actually, I've got 700 other prophets that have not bowed their knee to Baal. So see, Elijah was was performing this little pity party. Oh, poor me. I'm the only one left. I'm all by myself. Listen, we can learn a lesson from that, folks. Feeling sorry for yourself is not helping you. It's not helping you. It will keep you down where you are right now if you keep feeling sorry for yourself. You've got to muster your strength, stand up again, dust yourself off and say, I don't care what comes, I'm moving forward in the call that God has on my life. Regardless of what everybody else around me is doing, regardless of what everybody in my workplace is doing, regardless of what my spouse does, regardless of what my children do, I am moving forward in the call of God on my life. I'm reminded of several people in the Bible whose kids actually didn't live up to their hopes and expectations. Samuel was one of them. You know, the people said to Samuel one time, the great prophet Samuel, "Um, what are we going to do after you're gone? Your kids are not like you. Do you remember that? So we just have to take the attitude, I love my kids. I want to do whatever I can for them. I pray for them. But regardless of what they do, I'm moving forward with God. Regardless of what my husband does or regardless of what my wife does, I'm moving forward with God. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. That's the attitude we need to have. And remind ourselves uh, that, that, look, if it just, I don't know, this is for somebody. I, I've got Psalm 112 on there. Go read the whole chapter of Psalm 112. You'll be encouraged about, about your kids. That someday they will, they will be what this describes here. Your children will be mighty in the land. You know, just proclaim that over yourself. My children will be mighty in the land. But as for me, right now, I'm not going to feel sorry for myself. I am moving forward in God. As Joel 3.10 says, I am strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Amen. Praise God. So, so listen, self-pity is not your friend. Self-pity will keep you right where you are and, is a, in fact, pull you down in the quicksand even farther. Well, I want to make this point here before I close. You know, you and I may not be taken out by a chariot of fire (laughs) like Elijah did. But your life and mine can nevertheless have great significance and leave behind a ripple effect that can last for generations. See, you can literally, folks, you can literally 
be a history maker, a person whose life makes a difference for eternity, whose life touches countless other lives during your lifetime, but in an indirect way touches the lives of, of many more people after you're gone. You see, um, Bill, as an example, may have a really big impact on, let's say, Don. And through Bill's influence on Don, Don can then go and have influence on other people's lives, right? And through the lives that Don touches, many others may experience the touch of God. So there's a ripple effect, isn't it? See, that's why the Apostle Paul wrote to the believers in Philippi that for him to go to heaven was much better for him personally by far. But he wanted to stick around for a while longer because it was more beneficial to the people that he ministered to. He knew it was, was better to remain in this life a little longer so that he could minister to as many more people as possible to make a bigger impact for the kingdom with the years that remained. And that's exactly what Elijah ended up doing. When he prayed to die, God said, mm, no, Elijah, not right now. I've got more work for you to do, and you'll be happy that you stuck around to do that work. And that's the mindset that, e that each of us must have, that we need to be willing to, to work, to touch other people's lives. With the years that we have left, we may need to make them the most productive years possible. Praise God. Now, I'm almost done here, and then, then I'm going to bring Donna up. But I want to say this. You know, a move of God like we had a couple of weeks ago was wonderful. But it's for the purpose of equipping you to be even more fruitful with the years that remain. Don't try to reproduce the move of God. I'm going to say that again. Don't try to reproduce the move of God. See, listen, folks, if history and the scriptures teach us anything, it's that God refuses to be boxed in to what our preconceived ideas of revival is supposed to look like. In fact, do you know what revival looks like in some cases? It looks like blood-soaked revolution. Now stay with me on that point. Revival in some cases looks like blood-soaked revolution because I would challenge anyone who says that Elijah's victory at Mount Carmel that resulted in the, in the slaughter of 400 pagan priests of Baal wasn't a kind of revival. That was a turning point in Israel's history. Likewise, the Revolutionary War in America's history was a terrible war, but it ushered in revival in America. And in similar fashion, the Civil War took countless Americans' lives, but it ushered in a new chapter in the life of this nation, a chapter that would put an end to a terrible enterprise known as slavery which was an answer to the prayers of many of God's people who had been praying for a very long time. And that was a revival. See, revival in those cases didn't look like a revival service or a tent meeting or even Azusa Street. But it was revival nevertheless. So no, let's not be guilty of trying to put God in a little box of our preconceived ideas of what a great awakening is supposed to look like. Just move forward in the power and anointing that God has placed upon you for today. Because in the end, folks, when we stand before the great Bema Seat judgment of Christ, 
God isn't going to ask us how many revival services that we were in. He's going to hold us to account for what we did with our lives to touch the lives of many other people while we were here. And that's really what this life is all about, isn't it? So don't get sidetracked by chasing down revival services and don't get sidetracked by discouragement either. Muster your spiritual strength and press on now so that Christ may be glorified in your life today. Now, before we close and before I bring up Donna, I want to make a qualifying remark or two. And that's that this doesn't mean that we shouldn't be praying for the miraculous. That's not what I'm saying. We should be praying for the miraculous. I want us to continue seeking healing and other elements of the supernatural. That's a part of life in Christ, too, for those who are pursuing those things. Uh, so definitely uh, do try to learn more about healing and the supernatural. Uh, try to learn as much as you can about those things. And definitely seek God about those things because the supernatural is really supposed to be a normal part of the Christian life. Did you know that? But it's interesting to me that, uh, that the more prosperous a nation is, and the more free a nation is, the less the supernatural seems to flow. Have you noticed that? You know, the supernatural in earlier times seemed to be commonplace. Um, and again, the more free and prosperous a nation is, the, the less that seems to flow. You know, the supernatural was commonplace, for example, in the early Roman church during extreme persecution for four centuries. And the, the supernatural was flowing during that time so much so that Christianity eventually overtook Rome and Emperor Constantine proclaimed Christianity the official religion of Rome in the fourth century. And while that was wonderful, it wasn't too long after that that the fires cooled and the supernatural wasn't as common anymore. Isn't that interesting? And I think we in America find ourselves in a similar situation, folks. We have too many other things that demand our attention and distract us away from the supernatural. So I definitely want us as a church to be praying and seeking God along those lines. But what I'm trying to get us to understand in this teaching is that the day-to-day -day stuff where we live out, our, live out our faith in the marketplace away from any goosebumps... We're just living out our faith in the marketplace, in our schools, and in our homes. That's just as important to God. So let's not neglect the importance of the mundane day-to-day -day because God's in that stuff too. God's very practical. He's in that stuff too. Donna, come on up and add some comments to this, and then we're going to pray. I was just going to add a little bit more about when he was talking about discouragement. The enemy likes to do what we call the pile-up method. So, you know, one thing will, will hit you, some, some discouragement, and you, you may be okay in that. You may be able to do everything he's talked about, all these things, and you may be able to get yourself back in that place. And then something else may come along, and then something else may come along, and something else. And it's almost like, and this is how, I, maybe you can relate to this, but I feel like, like, oh, well, then I deserve to be discouraged because all of these things has happened. Listen to all these things. This has happened. This has happened. This has happened. 
I almost almost deserve to be discouraged because <laughs> who can who can handle all of these things this pile up method? That's where and you talked about friends. You talked about our you know our, our the church body. That's where you can, that encouragement can come because honestly, it's so funny because you know somebody will be discouraged and I can. Oh, I have a wealth of information for them. I lead them to the word and to, you know, prayer and to worship and, you know, all these things. And I'm just like, woo, I know it. I know what to do. But when that hits me, sometimes I'm like, what do I do? You know, when we got this, we have this list so you can, can keep this list in a safe place where you know to go, okay, and pick it up. And so you're like, okay, number one, you know, that's the, <laughs> it's almost like that. Or you can call a bud because honestly, we have this, most of the gals here at church want to be on this group text. It gets a little wild sometimes. So some want to be, some want to be individual, but, um, but we, you know what, when there, when somebody needs prayer, you get on that text and you ask for prayer. And I'm telling you, faith prayers come out, faith yeah. prayers come out, come and see me if you want to be added to the group. Or come and see me if you want me to contact you individually with the same kind of information that we're getting through. But at least it won't be like comment, comment, loved, liked, you know, all those things. But anyway, I'm telling you, it can be an encouragement. If it's if it's bothering you, sometimes just put it on mute and put it away. Or you know, if it's, it's a bad time for you, but it, it really is encouragement. And your your our sisters, they just know how to what to say, and they they put their little prayers on there, and it's like, yes, that's what I need. And you know what? Sometimes it's hard for yourself to pray that. It's great when you know somebody's praying that over you. It's so encouraging. So um, I was just going to say that about, you know, our friends. Um, but I was going to say, too, that uh, when you were talking about Elijah, did you notice when Elijah was like in the cave uh, or not eating, he's, the angel woke him up and said, here, eat. We don't have that. We don't have somebody coming over here. Come on, shake yourself off. Here, eat this food. We don't have that, but we we can set ourselves up where we have a friend who, you know, I think it was Keith Moore said he would text a friend and say, tell me how healed I am. Tell me how delivered I am, you know, because you don't want to say, oh, I'm so sick or I'm, so, you know, want to, you know, you want to use your words in a powerful way, but you say, remind me how healed I am. Remind me how free I am. What's, you know, remind me what the word says about this, but um, it's just really important to to recognize these things because the enemy, he knows how to push your buttons. He knows. So be prepared and be ready for that. Um, figure out what your shovel is. When you have that pile up method, you're going to need a shovel to get rid of that pile. So figure out what your shovel is. So. Very good, babe. Yeah. 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 That, that was good, babe. So um, what would our shovel be then? Our shovels, when we're experiencing that pile-on method, would be the encouragement of other friends, the Word of God, prayer. You know, worship is huge. That's a huge shovel right there. If you feel discouraged, you need to get, start getting thankful again for the things that you know. Yes, yeah, Steve? Come on, come on, brother. You know, I've been in Moves of God, and, you know, it's exciting. But we get this expectation how we think it should be. And I was praying one morning and God said, I'm doing a new thing and it's gonna be uncomfortable. Then I got a confirmation from a message I was listening to, the exact same thing, that there is gonna be times of discomfort 
and the only time you grow is through discomfort. If you're lifting weights and you only use a certain amount of weight, you're not going nowhere, but you add the weight to it, you're going to grow. And that's going to be the same thing. God's going to test our faith here in the future. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Andy Robbins and Blessed Life Fellowship. For more teaching and ministry resources, go to the church website at www.blessedlifefellowship.org. Thanks for listening, and may God's grace and favor shine on you.